0: This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. Hey folks, I have a couple of quick announcements as we kick off the new year here. I hope you'll help us fund our production costs for 2017 so I can keep providing you brand new podcasts twice a week. Show your support for the show by giving to our GoFundMe campaign at gofundme.com slash kickassnews or click on the donate button at kickassnews.com. Whatever you can give is always appreciated and will help us keep going over here in 2017. I also want to ask you to take a brief listener survey so we can better understand you, our audience, and find advertisers who are best matched to your interests. Just take five minutes to go to podsurvey.com kick and take the survey. And when you're done, be sure to register to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash kick. Thanks for listening, and now enjoy the podcast. Hi, I'm Ben Mathis, and welcome to Kick-Ass News. Folks, if you think politics is boring, then you haven't met my guest today. The undisputed master of the black arts of electioneering, Roger Stone has been described as the lord of mischief and the boastful black prince of Republican sleaze by the Weekly Standard. Politico has called him the master of right-wing political hit jobs, and the village voice has described him as, quote, the most dangerous person in America. This Republican political consultant, lobbyist, and strategist is regarded as much for his sartorial flair and his at times vaudevillian antics as his mastery of opposition research and October surprises. Roger Stone's education in political trickery first began under Richard Nixon, working for the infamous Committee to Reelect the President you know, the Watergate folks. His office is something of a museum to Nixon, and he even reportedly has a tattoo of the 37th president on his back. Stone served as Ronald Reagan's regional political director for New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut during the 1980 and 1984 presidential campaigns. He went on to serve as a senior consultant for California for President George H.W. Bush's campaign. And in 2000, Stone's hardball tactics closed down the Miami-Dade presidential recount and were credited with helping George W. Bush win the election. He's also served as an advisor to Bob Dole, Jack Kemp, and Arlen Specter, among others. Though he's sometimes coy about his involvement in many of the most notorious dirty tricks of the past 40 years, Roger Stone doesn't necessarily discourage speculation that he was the mastermind behind everything from the infamous Willie Horton ad in the 1988 election to the Elliot Spitzer prostitution scandal— to last year's allegations that Senator Ted Cruz had five mistresses. There are even some who allege that he may have pulled off the Mona Lisa of October surprises just last fall by orchestrating the Clinton campaign email hacks and the 11th hour reopening of the FBI investigation into Hillary Clinton. It goes without saying that the legend of Roger Stone has taken on a life of its own. Such is the time he ran the New York gubernatorial campaign of the madam who helped sink the political career of Eliot Spitzer. In his own words, quote, politics with me isn't theater, it's performance art, sometimes for its own sake. No one understands that better than the man to whom he has served as an advisor, friend, and close personal confidant, Donald Trump. Now Roger Stone talks about their 40-year friendship and offers an insider's account of the campaign that broke all the rules and put Trump in the White House in his new book, The Making of the President 2016, How Donald Trump Orchestrated a Revolution. Today, Roger Stone joins me on the podcast to recount his crash course in underhandedness on the Nixon campaign and share some favorable comparisons between Richard Nixon and Donald Trump. He'll talk about his first introduction to Donald Trump through mob attorney Roy Cohn, the near-death experience that he says made him realize that Trump was spared for a higher purpose, and the moment years ago when he knew Donald Trump was serious about running for president. He'll reveal why he decided this time he could serve Trump better from outside of Trump's 2016 campaign, and he'll talk about some of the political chicanery he pulled on his old friend's behalf. Plus, he'll address accusations that he was involved in the Russian email hacks that brought down Hillary Clinton, and his suspicions that someone in the deep state may have poisoned him in an attempt to silence Roger Stone once and for all. Coming up with Roger Stone Jr., in just a moment. Roger Stone Jr. is a legendary Republican political operative, both famous and infamous as a practitioner of the dark arts of political trickery and opposition research. He was instrumental in the election of Republican presidents Richard Nixon, Ronald Reagan, and George H.W. Bush. He was also instrumental in the 2000 Florida recount that helped elect George W. Bush. He's also well-known as a snappy dresser and close confidant and political advisor to Donald Trump for almost 40 years, I think. Uh, He writes about it in a new book called The Making of the President 2016, How Donald Trump Orchestrated a Revolution. Roger Stone, thanks for joining me over Skype. Thank you very much for having me. Well, uh, if I'm not mistaken, your book is a nod to Theodore White's seminal political book, The Making of the President, 1960, which followed the Kennedy campaign. Uh, I believe that's around the time that you first started taking an interest in politics. In fact, wasn't that your first political dirty trick on behalf of JFK?
1: Well, first of all, one man's dirty trick, of course, is another man's civic participation. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I was, uh, my family was non Uh, and, um, when I was in elementary school, the school announced, I guess I was in the second grade that they were going to have a mock election. Now we lived in a reliably Republican suburb outside of New York city. Uh, but because, um, I, my family is a Roman Catholic, John Kennedy was a Roman Catholic, And because he had much better hair than Nixon, (laughs) I was for Jack Kennedy. Uh, So in order to win this mock election, I stood on the cafeteria line and I told each kid, you know, if Nixon is elected. We're going to have school on Saturdays. (laughs) Anyway, uh, to the shock of everyone, uh, John Kennedy swept this mock election of, you know, 60, not even, I guess, 12 year olds. (laughs) <laughs> uh and uh, that was my uh, first experience with political disinformation. Now, of course, I haven't used that technique at all since then.
0: <laughs> well, I think that got you hooked because later on you worked for Richard Dixon's infamous committee to reelect the president of Watergate fame. A lot of people would probably leave that off their resume, but you seem to revel in it. In fact, you said that that was where you got a crash course in the black arts of campaigning. What did you learn there?
1: Well, first of all, I, I learned that you cannot divorce human nature from politics. Uh, and while people talk about running a positive uh, campaign and they talk about being uplifting and so on, you're familiar with the rock and roll song, Dirty Laundry. <laughs> the voters aren't interested in dry, boring, 25-page white papers on the environment. When Smith attacks Jones, they like that. Yeah. Politics is a contact sport in America. Everyone, <laughs> all Americans like a, a good fight and politics isn't beanbagged. They accused Abraham Lincoln of fathering African American children out of wedlock. They accused Grover Cleveland of having, uh, a, uh, an illegitimate child. Uh, they accused one of our early presidents of being a cross dresser. So let's not pretend that politics has always been pristine uh, and intellectual and uplifting.
0: Uh,
1: This is a fight uh, and it's a fight in which you have to be willing to do anything that is legal to win. And those are key words. Anything that is legal. Some of the amateurs around Richard Nixon in 1972 crossed that line. Uh, And um, I learned from that as well.
0: And you say that you see a lot of similarities between Nixon's political style and his strategy and that of Donald Trump.
1: Well, and I'm talking about uh, their positive attributes. Um, Both are highly intelligent. Both men are brilliant, in fact. Uh, Both men are highly competitive. Uh, Both men are pragmatists. Neither Trump nor Nixon was really a hardcore ideologue. They're interested in results. They're interested in what works. I think both of them lean right. President Trump is a conservative populist, uh, but he's not in any way a purist. So um, they also, I think, are both exceedingly determined, both very stubborn, both very focused. Having known Donald Trump for 40 years, I can tell you, When he sets his mind to do something, he cannot be dissuaded. He is going to build the wall because he said he would. He is going to fix our infrastructure because he said he was. He's a builder, first and foremost, uh, and he, he knows that as Americans, we can do whatever we set our mind to. Trump doesn't believe there's no such thing as can't. That doesn't exist in his lexicon. So in that sense, he and Trump, I think, uh, pardon me, Trump and Nixon are in many ways similar.
0: Um, Do you see more similarities between his style and Nixon's style as opposed to his and Reagan's?
1: Well, certainly in
0: the campaign. Let's review it. Mm -hmm. What did Trump talk about? The silent majority.
1: Right. The forgotten Americans. I am the candidate of law and order. And as far as the Russians are concerned, I am the candidate of peace. Hillary was the candidate of war. Mm -hmm. You probably already have your proxy war in Syria if she had uh, uh, been elected. So I think they're they're very similar. And, of course, Reagan was overall more ideological than either one of them. On the other hand, there are similarities with Reagan. Trump and Reagan both have a certain command presence. It's hard to describe because it's more than charisma. It's more than size. I don't mean physical size as much as I mean presence. Mm -hmm. Uh, it, It is a phenomena that's hard to put your finger on. It's certain magnetism. But I know this. When Donald Trump is in the room, all eyes are on Donald Trump. When Ronald Reagan was in a room, all eyes were on President Reagan. Uh, George Bush, he could be the guy, your next door neighbor, you wouldn't know the difference.
0: <laughs> and you worked for both of those guys. In fact, wasn't it when you were working on the Reagan campaign that you first met Donald Trump?
1: Yeah. When I was sent to, uh, New York in 1979 to organize the state for governor Reagan, uh, I was, um, uh, introduced to Donald Trump by the notorious lawyer, Roy Cohen. And, um, right. We hit it off immediately. uh, And I walked away from our first meeting saying, wow, I wonder if this guy would ever run
0: for office. And when you met with Roy Cohn, didn't you say that you kind of walked in on a meeting between him and fat Tony Salerno?
1: Yeah, my very first meeting, I made an appointment um, through his secretary. I showed up at his Brownstone office on the Upper East Side. They kept me waiting for, I don't know, half an hour. Uh, cooling my heels. Finally, the receptionist said, please go to the dining room on the second floor and Mr. Cohn will meet you there. Uh, When I walked in, um, there was Roy Cohn wearing a silk bathrobe. It was about (laughs) 11 o'clock in the morning. He looked like he'd been out all night, which he probably had. Uh, And there was a corpulent gentleman there. And he said, uh, Mr. Stone here works for Governor Ronald Reagan. Mr. Stone, say hello to Mr. Salerno. And there I was shaking hands with the head of the Genovese crime family.
0: You didn't solicit him for a contribution to the Reagan campaign.
1: <laughs> uh, first of all, Tony's hand was about the size of a of a ham, uh, and we shook hands, and he said, "So Roy says we're going with Reagan this time." <laughs> I'm I'm glad to hear it. You know, the last guy I backed was Jack Kennedy, and he turned out to be a no-good SOB.
0: Oh, we saw what happened to him. Yes. <laughs> I think Tony may have known more about that than I did. Maybe so. Well, what was your first meeting with Donald Trump like? What was your impression of him?
1: Uh, I just saw the charisma. I saw the magnetism. I saw the size. Uh, and then people may not realize this because they see the television version, but He's a very funny guy. Mm-hmm. He's a very easygoing, fun to be with guy. He, he, he can talk to anybody, doorman or, you know, Fortune 500 CEO. He speaks easily to everyone. Uh, for a guy who's a billionaire, he is not in any way an elitist or a snob. He's just a regular guy.
0: And one of the most interesting stories in the book, you talk about a moment when you realized Donald Trump was put on the earth for a higher purpose. And I guess either you or divine providence must have stepped in and spared both of your lives. What happened there?
1: Well, I um, was working in Washington, D.C. Uh, as a lobbyist for the Trump Organization uh, on some specific matters. I had a time-sensitive meeting, a matter in which I needed to see Donald I called him in New York and said, you know, I could jump a shuttle and see you at noon today. And he said, no, I can't do it today. I've got to fly to Atlantic City with some of my executives. How about tomorrow? And I said, well, this really won't wait. Uh, I really need to see you today. And he said, all right, I'll tell you what. If you head up here immediately, I'll send the chopper down with those guys. Then I'll have it sent back to pick me up and take me down when we're finished. Uh, and that's what I did. So when I showed up at the office, I was ushered in to see, uh, Donald. And within a few minutes, his assistant Norma Federer came in and said, um, I have terrible news, Mr. Trump, uh, the superintendent of state police, Clint Pagano is on line one for you. The helicopter has crashed and everybody aboard has been killed. Wow. Uh, uh. Donald took the call from the superintendent of police who confirmed that, yes, the plane had gone or the helicopter had gone in the Pinelands and everybody had perished. Donald really asked only one question. Are you absolutely sure? And the cop said, yes, I'm absolutely sure. He hung up the phone. He was quiet for a moment. Then he instructed his assistant, Norma, to get each one of the widows on the phone for him. In some cases, he was the one breaking the news to them, something I could Gosh. not have done. Yeah. Uh, now, he may have met with other people after he scheduled me, and I'm not saying I saved his life. <laughs> I'm saying God saved his life. Yeah. I really believed at that point that he'd been saved for a, a higher purpose, that he'd been designated by our creator for some higher purpose. I now realize exactly what that higher purpose was. I think this is our last best chance to save our country.
0: Many people felt that this was just a lark for Donald Trump at first, but you say he had his eye on 2016 for several years in advance. Um, When did Donald Trump get serious first about running for the Republican nomination?
1: Well, I know a lot of people don't believe this, but I, I always thought he was somewhat serious. There is that factor in which, You look at the job being done by others and you say, wow, I could do better than that. The truth of it is that he came very close to running in 2012. Mm -hmm. I wanted him to run in 2012. But in retrospect, I'm not sure he could have won in 2012. I think perhaps Americans needed to experience the full eight years of Barack Obama before the perfect storm was created before you had the level of, of anger and dissatisfaction with Washington and politicians that we have today. So uh, I do know this. He later regretted not running in 2012 when he saw what a terrible campaign and a terrible candidate Mitt Romney was really. Uh, And within days of Romney losing before the end of the year in 2012, Donald quietly went to the U S patents and trademarks office and trademarked the phrase, make America great again. He told me on new year's day, 2013, I'm definitely running in 2016. I've already trademarked the phrase, the slogan.
0: Yeah. That was really interesting that he even had the slogan four years back. Um, well, your role this time, you said, was as a friend and a confidant. Uh, you didn't have, I guess, an official role within the Trump campaign. Is that right?
1: Well, I, I, I was a paid consultant to the Trump campaign oh, were. until August. Okay. I, resi- I resigned in August for two reasons. One, my book, The Clinton's War on Women, which is a devastating expose of Bill Hillary and their greedy, corrupt, criminal little child, Chelsea, who's a 30-year-old adult, by the way, (laughs) uh, was coming out. And then secondarily, it finally occurred to me that I could be more effective on Donald Trump's behalf from the outside. Life is too short to have to deal with people like Corey Lewandowski.
0: (laughs) Well, yeah, that's what I was going to ask you as a practitioner of the dark arts. uh, Did you decide that you would be more useful to him from outside the official campaign?
1: Well, uh, there's no doubt about that. And I did a a couple of uh, perfectly legal and entirely reported (laughs) independent efforts uh, for which there was no coordination with the campaign. Mm -hmm. Two of them are detailed in this book, the effort to educate African-Americans about Danny Williams, who is the legitimate, genuine, abandoned son of Bill Clinton, banished by Hillary. Thirty eight million people saw the documentary video on this that I put up on Facebook. Uh, And then secondarily, when the mainstream media insisted on calling Bill Clinton's record of serial sexual assaults indiscretions and infidelity, which is not described what they are. These are acts of violence against yeah. women. It has nothing to do with indiscretion. Well there was only one way to break through that mainstream media blackout. And that was was with the iconic Bill Clinton <laughs> rape T shirt.
0: Yeah. Which which, which which
1: appeared on television all over the country uh in, in this election. Yeah. I have no doubt that the T shirt will end up in the Smithsonian. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah and they spoofed the famous posters of Obama from 8 years ago with the word, that had the word hope um and these ones had pictures of Bill Clinton that just said rape at the bottom but very the similar style and graphic to them um going back to Danny Williams uh although it was largely blown off by the mainstream media you said the Danny Williams story really resonated with the African American community and may have even led to Trump's surprising success with black voters on election day. Um, what did they take from the Danny Williams scandal? What resonated there?
1: Well, look, I think every, um, African American understands the narrative of the slave owner on the plantation who impregnates one of his slaves and the plantation owner's wife wants that child gone. This is a very familiar meme. Uh, And if anyone will look at it objectively, look at the facts and look at his physical likeness, there is no question that Danny Williams is the son of Bill Clinton. Now, if the Clintons think this is unfair or a smear, let's clear it up immediately, Bill. (laughs) Hand over a valid DNA sample. Let's get it tested by a lab that we all agree with. And you'll be writing checks to Danny Williams for the rest of your life.
0: Yeah, and you also say that Trump's success with black voters opens up a big opportunity, perhaps in the near future, for the GOP to really expand their territory with that vote, right?
1: Well, this is where I think people miss the boat. Um, Donald Trump got approximately 3% more of the African-American vote than Mitt Romney. And I can see how you might look at that and say, well, that's de minimis. That's not very much. No, it isn't it was enough to swing Michigan, it was enough to swing Wisconsin, it was enough to swing Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. So a small incremental gain made a big difference at the end of the day. Uh, Now, if the president can deliver opportunity and prosperity and growth to our inner cities, if he can use the tools of capitalism to help get people lifted uh, to a better life, I think our potential among African-American voters and people of color is unlimited. On the left, you're going to hear he's a racist, he's a bigot. I've known him 40 years. None of those things are true. In fact, he's created more jobs for black people than Barack Obama has.
0: We're going to take a quick break right now, and then I'll be back with more with Roger Stone Jr. when we come back in just a moment. So it's a new year now, and there's no better time to launch an online business or expand your online presence for your existing business, and GoDaddy.com wants to help. GoDaddy's mission is to radically shift the global economy toward life-fulfilling independent ventures, helping their customers kick ass by giving them the tools, insights, and the people to transform their ideas and personal initiatives into success. GoDaddy is the world's largest technology provider dedicated to small business and the largest domain registrar with over 62 million domain names under management and big savings over other registrars. Their award-winning 24-7 support will help build your online business and give you everything you need to get up and running. Whether you have a new idea or an established business, the key to success online starts with a great domain name, and GoDaddy is trusted by 13 million customers. That's more than any other registrar. And right now, my listeners can get a special discount on a GoDaddy domain if you just use my offer code KICK30 at checkout to get 30% off new purchases. That's GoDaddy.com and offer code KICK30 for 30% off. You don't have to spend a fortune on a domain. Just go to GoDaddy.com and type in the offer code KICK30 at checkout for 30% off and launch your online business today. And now back to the podcast. Going back to the convention, you say that when he was trying to pick his running mate, uh, along with Mike Pence, he considered Chris Christie and Newt Gingrich. Why did he end up going with Mike Pence?
1: Well, first of all, I think Pence was reassuring to the conservative base of the party, particularly to uh, the party's evangelical Christian wing. Uh, Chris Christie was dogged by questions about the George Washington Bridge uh, scandal, which would have continued and only gotten worse in the election. And the case of Newt Gingrich, the real problem there was the Andy Warhol Foundation wanted their wig back.
0: (laughs) Well, well, there were also rumors that – then-candidate Trump had one of his sons approach John Kasich about joining the ticket. As far as you know, was there any truth to that?
1: I don't believe that that is true.
0: Well, let's talk about election night. What was that like from your perspective? Where were you?
1: Well, I I had um, pretty much figured out that Donald Trump would win on Sunday before the election. Really? Yes, really on the basis of studying a lot of polling that is not available to the average citizen. Some from the campaign, some from other Republican candidates running for office, but testing the presidential race in their states. I do have a network of people across the country who I've known through nine, now 10 Republican presidential campaigns. And I could see the trend line uh, and you could extrapolate it out and see where the line would cross. Trump was gaining with an enormous head of steam Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. Hillary Clinton was either, depending on the state, sitting still, and in some cases she was starting to drop, largely because of the announcement that the email investigation would be reopened. So um, it was a surreal moment. Early in the evening, when the early return showed her ahead, I did for a moment say to myself, wow, could you be wrong? Did you misread this? Uh, In the end, I didn't. In the end, it came out, exactly as i thought it would and that being trump breaks through in michigan wisconsin and pennsylvania and wins the election everything else up to that time was predictable we knew that we would win ohio we knew we would squeeze out florida right uh it was you know the real question was could we expand
0: the map which you did so this didn't come as a surprise to you despite all the public polls that said she was going to win by a significant margin
1: no, because as I write in the in my book, the pollsters, almost all of them, with a few exceptions, were using a bad model. They were making an assumption that turnout would be the same in 2016 as it had been in 2012. Mm-hmm. The same number of women, the same number of men, the same number of Hispanics, the same number of African-Americans, the same number of Catholics, etc. cetera. And that was a that was a bad decision. You didn't have to be a genius to understand that the dynamics were different and that Hillary Clinton, no matter how hard she tried, was never going to get as many votes or as big a turnout from the African-American community as President Barack Obama, who is, let's face it, an iconic, historic figure. So uh, and they and they overestimated Hillary's strength among women,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: among women over 53, white women over 53. Donald Trump carried them. Trump also won three out of 10 of the Bernie Sanders voters yeah. on the basis of his appeal on trade and war and peace issues.
0: Yeah. And since that night, uh, some have tried to tarnish his victory by making claims that there have been ties between Russia and Vladimir Putin and the Trump campaign. Uh, you yourself have been accused by some in the mainstream media of being a something of a conduit between Vladimir Putin and the Trump campaign. You mentioned publicly having some connection to Julian Assange and perhaps some vague knowledge that something was coming that might damage Clinton. What is your relationship with Julian Assange?
1: Yeah, I'm always glad to have an opportunity to clear the air (laughs) about this. Um, I did not have advance notice that he was going to hack anybody, including John Podesta. We do have a mutual friend who's a journalist whose name I'm not going to reveal, who who communicated with Assange and then communicated with me and told me that WikiLeaks was in possession of devastating information that would rock the Clinton campaign and that they would release it. Guess what? He did and they did. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, Some in the Clinton camp have tried to use that to say Stone knew that the that Assange and WikiLeaks were in bed with the Russians. Stone knew in advance that Podesta's email would be packed? No, I didn't. Just to be clear. Okay. okay. I don't have any I don't have any Russian clients. I don't know any Russians. I have never been to Russia. I did not communicate directly or indirectly with any Russians during this campaign or any other. Uh, I have no Russian influences, no <laughs> Russian contacts. The whole thing is a canard it's a falsehood. Okay. It, it w- started by the Clinton campaign, picked up by the Central Intelligence Agency, and I simply say, where is the proof? Don't tell us about your assessments or your judgments, or your projections. Show me proof.
0: Yeah. And, and then some people pointed to the tweet that you made about uh John Podesta over the summer saying that he'll soon get his time in the barrel. And then they suggested that that was alluding to the leaks about John Podesta that would come later on in the fall. Um, What were you referring to in that tweet about Podesta?
1: I was referring to a piece that I wrote that was published three days later in late August, connecting John Podesta, the Russian mob and the Clinton foundation, by the way. None of that information came from WikiLeaks or is reflected in the subsequent WikiLeaks uh, disclosures. This is my own research. It's a terrific piece. You can see it at stonecoldtruth.com. So it has nothing to do with Assange. uh, And many, many, many months when it does become clear that WikiLeaks has hacked um, John Podesta's email, I'm as surprised as everyone else.
0: Well, as a political trickster, does part of you wish that you would have been responsible for the hack? I mean, that you could have gone out with the ultimate masterpiece of October surprise there.
1: Well, first of all, uh, as I think we now know, the Democratic National Committee records that show that Hillary and Deborah Wasserman Schultz had to cheat to beat Bernie Sanders right. was not the results of a hack. Let me say it again. Not the results of a hack. I don't know what's wrong with the New York Times, but they can't get this through their head. The people who physically pass that information on from an informant have come forward. Craig Murray, who's a distinguished former British diplomat, says he was the one who physically met somebody in the woods outside of American University and got the file. Interesting. Days days later, uh, Seth Rice, a young man who worked at the Democratic National Committee, gets three bullets in the back. Right, right. Then Assange goes public on Twitter and says he's offering an award for information that leads to the conviction of the murderer of Seth Rich. Who was Assange's informant? Let me give you an educated guess.
0: Huh. Now, you also claim that you had a bit of a close call. You claimed that you were in December poisoned by political enemies in the quote unquote deep state because they wanted to stop you from testifying about the Russian hack before Congress. Um, what do you mean by the deep state?
1: Well, first of all, I, I put forward a theory cause I can prove nothing. I can only prove okay. that I was very ill uh, and all the medical records most definitely showed that I had been poisoned with an exogenous substance Uh, that the medical report says was um, uh, uh, polonium Polonium. or a similar substance. Mm -hmm. Polonium is a highly restricted substance. You can't just walk into a drugstore and buy it. Only nation states have access to it. Now, some people say, ah, you see, the Russians wanted to kill Stone because he was their agent and they were afraid that he would that he would be exposed. Well, they've used that hearings. method
0: before several times, right?
1: Well, they allegedly the polonium. yeah. Uh, allegedly. No one's ever proven that Livnenko was killed by the Russians. He may have been killed by British intelligence. Hmm. But um, I, one of, my mine is just a theory. Who is the deep state? The Central Intelligence Agency and other elements of the NSC. Okay. John Brennan, the radical Islamist Wahhabist, a man who refused to be sworn with the Bible uh, and who's an active member of the U.S. Communist Party, according to his wiki biography. Uh, I'd say he's a member of the deep state. How is it that he predicted the Russian hacking before it happened? Huh. Mr. President, arrest this guy, investigate him, indict him and try him. He's a traitor. So you- he's a perfect example of okay. the deep state. This is the CIA director who said to the president of the United States just before he was worn in, you better watch your mouth. Really? Really?
0: (laughs) So you think that perhaps John Brennan or someone under him or associated with him might have been responsible for the hacks as some kind of a, I don't know, a false flag or what?
1: Look, the whole notion of Russian hacking grew out of the fact that Donald Trump said late in the campaign In regard to Hillary's illegal, unsecure email server, hey, if the Russians have her records, I hope they'll release them. That turned into a Clinton talking point. The Russians are helping Trump. Trump is in bed with the Russians. Roger Stone, Paul Manafort, they work for the Russians. This is the new McCarthyism. Hmm. If you're not for thermonuclear war with the Russians over Syria then you must be a traitor to your home country. Uh, it, it, huh. it, it's it, it's insulting, really. Uh, the irony that they would accuse us of being soft on to- totalitarianism. Uh, Putin's not a good guy. The Russian system is not a good system. But that doesn't mean that I want war over Syria, mm-hmm. where Assad is definitely not a friend of ours, propped up by the Russians and financing Hezbollah and worse. And on the other side, you have ISIS propped up by the Saudis, the Saudis who feed radical Islam while pretending to oppose it.
0: Do you think President Trump realizes that Vladimir Putin isn't a good guy and probably not someone to be immediately trusted?
1: Without any question. Yeah. But that doesn't mean you don't respect him. Mm -hmm. You have to respect him. Fair enough. And you have to have some kind of mutual trust so you can negotiate. Why would... Putin theoretically favor Trump over Hillary? Easy. He's met Hillary. He knows she's a liar. (laughs) He knows nothing she agrees to can be counted on. Maybe he'd rather negotiate with someone who will keep his word.
0: Well, now that Trump is president, I'm curious. You considered running as a libertarian candidate for governor of Florida in 2014. A lot of Trump associates are contemplating or announcing runs for offices on his coattails. Uh, what are the odds that you might finally take the plunge yourself and run for office?
1: Well, I think it's highly unlikely. I did consider actually running for the U.S. Senate as a libertarian because, frankly, once the Republican Party nominated Mitt Romney, I kind of knew it was over.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Mitt Romney's not a conservative. He's barely a Republican. Uh, he became a Republican a couple of years before he ran for government. He tried to talk the talk, but it was so phony, it was almost as phony as the color of his hair. And people in politics can spot a phony a million miles away. I worked for Tom Kane, one of the greatest governors in New Jersey. Right. He was an aristocrat. He had an odd way of speaking. He dressed aristocratically. He was eminently likable. You know why? Because he didn't try to pretend to be something he wasn't, like George Bush mm-hmm. Sr., cowboy bleeps. Pork rinds, dude, you were born in Greenwich, Connecticut. Give me a break. You went to private schools in Greenwich, Connecticut and Massachusetts. Now suddenly you're a cowboy. Doesn't work.
0: Now, are you a registered Republican or a libertarian now?
1: Uh, I'm probably technically still a registered libertarian. I looked into switching back to the Republican Party so I could vote for Donald Trump in the Florida primary. But I had missed the deadline. So I will, I will, you know, at some point I, now that Trump has won and he's going to reform the Republican Party, I will probably switch back.
0: Okay. But so no Sherman-esque statements uh, against you running for governor of Florida, huh? Anything is possible. Anything is possible. Okay. Well, that's not a no. Before we go, you're famous for your sartorial elegance. Uh, Do you have any rules of fashion to impart?
1: Uh, Well, I've got to say that I was just a little disappointed um, that President Trump uh, did not choose to wear the traditional uh, morning suit that Jack Kennedy and and, um, uh, Bill Clinton uh, and Ronald Reagan wore. You know, the 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 uh, tailcoat, the gray vest, the striped trousers. Uh, On the other hand, top hat, um, the gray top hat. Yeah, the top hat's the best part. On the other hand, um, the president-elect uh, did call me before the inauguration with one simple question. Raj, he said, blue tie, red tie. <laughs> Obvious red tie. Yeah. The red the red power tie. That is and was established by Donald Trump.
0: Yeah, and I did see your tweet in which you uh, had a photo of yourself dressed in full mourning clothes for the inauguration. I think you said uh, the the proper attire for a presidential inauguration. I think I think I somewhere I tweeted that and I said Roger Stone is properly dressed for the inauguration of William Howard Taft. <laughs> just tweaking I, I, you a little. That's a great that's
1: a great tweet. You know the last time I was I wore this outfit was when I got married. So oh, i really? been looking for another opportunity to wear it. And here it was.
0: Now were you wearing spats with that?
1: No, you never wear spats during the day just for a small etiquette point. Spats are only for the evening, and they tend to make the whole thing a little too costumey, which is not what you're trying to achieve.
0: (laughs) Words to the wise. I'll keep that in mind. Well, again, the book is called The Making of the President 2016, How Donald Trump Orchestrated a Revolution. Roger Stone Jr., thanks for talking with me. Uh, You can get this at Infowars.com
1: or Barnes & Noble or RogerStone.com. Thanks for having me.
0: All righty. Thanks a lot, Roger. I appreciate it. Terrific. Thank you. Thanks again to Roger Stone for joining me on the podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, then you can order his book, The Making of the President 2016, How Donald Trump Orchestrated a Revolution on Amazon. Or you can download the audio version for free through a special trial offer just for our listeners at audibletrial.com slash kickassnews. You can visit Roger Stone's website at StoneZone.com and follow him on Twitter at, at Roger J. Stone Jr. Don't forget to take our listener survey so we can keep the show free and find advertisers who are best matched to you, our listeners. Just take five minutes to go to PodSurvey.com kick and take the survey. And when you're done, be sure to register for that $100 Amazon gift card giveaway. Be sure to subscribe to Kick-Ass News on iTunes and leave us a review while you're there. You can like Kick-Ass News on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at KAPolitics. And please be sure to recommend Kick-Ass News to your friends on your social media. And if you really want to help out, then donate to our GoFundMe campaign at gofundme.com kickassnews. Or click on the donate button at kickassnews.com. As always, I welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions at comments at kickassnews.com. For now, though, I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass News. Gas News is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment Inc.